coming to you from the KUCI headquarters in sunny Irvine, California. It's half past five with Paxton Wright. Tonight's guest, UCI professor and media historian Lucas Hildebrand, featuring music by Jacob Collier. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Paxton Wright. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Not K-Rock, not Jack FM, not the InfoWars podcast. I sure hope not anyway. And boy, folks, what an episode we have for you today. Uh, I was joined by my uh, former professor here at UCI, Lucas Hildebrand. Uh, he was generous enough to come to the studio and talk a bit about his uh, his studies, particularly on the... Uh, histories of analog media and the sort of legal ramifications that came with the evolution of analog media, particularly home video and VHS, uh, as well as the significance of pornography on the industry. Um, If you're a 14-year-old boy, I, I, I have to tell you, unfortunately, this is a fairly dry, stern, and not particularly raunchy conversation on the subject. So this may not be the show for you, but also if you're a 14-year-old boy, it's I don't really know why you're tuning into uh college radio, but I don't uh I don't I don't judge you for that. In fact, I think that's pretty cool of you. Anyway, uh let's waste no more time and get right into the show. By the way, I also want to mention, forgot to plug them at the end, but Lucas Hildebrand has written two books, uh both of which we discuss which are Paris is Burning, uh, which is which is an analysis and historical recounting of the film Paris is Burning, as well as what we predominantly talked about, his book Inherent Vice. No, not the Thomas Pynchon Inherent Vice. It is just a shared title, and we do get into that a bit as well. And both of those books are available in ebook form on Amazon, so I highly encourage you to check them out if you find our discussion today interesting, because uh, I guarantee they get into much more meat of the subject than, than we were able to in 25 minutes. So... Remember, also, if you want to check out this show in podcast form, assuming you're not listening to it in podcast form already, you can do so on Apple Podcasts at KUCI colon half past five. You can also email me with any questions, comments, inquiries, insults, advice, etc. at paxtonwright at KUCI.org. That's P-A-X-T-O-N-W-R-I-G-H-T at KUCI.org. All right. Well, enjoy the show, folks. Lucas, thank you mm-hmm. so much for coming on the show today. It's much appreciated. You're welcome. <laughs> how is uh, how, how's life treating you lately? Life has been busy, but mostly in good ways, despite the state of everything else in the world. Things that you see, I are actually pretty good. That's so. you know what? That's one thing we can uh, we can hold on to hope for. Mm-hmm. You let UCI be the moral anchor for the rest of the world to follow that's the, yeah that's the dream so. <laughs> um so I, I wanted to have you on today to talk a bit about your history in uh your field of study mm-hmm. which um does cover a broad range of topics mm-hmm. uh so you've written two books on your main subjects which are paris is burning as well as um, Inherent Vice, Bootleg Histories of Videotape and Copyright, which is, I, I wanted to focus a lot on that one today um, mm-hmm. because I, it's a subject I find 
deeply fascinating and and, and I'm kind of curious as to why we as people find it so fascinating um, so the book it, it focuses largely on the aesthetic as well as legal histories of analog video and so I'm curious how exactly do those two things tie together yeah sure so there's uh, there's a longer history of how the project came to be and basically a lot of different threads of interest began to interweave. So I can talk through basically how the book came about and, and then maybe work out to sort of some of those different histories. So essentially, I was in graduate school and I was doing a, a conference presentation on a film called Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, which you may have heard of. It was Todd Haynes's first major film uh, featuring Barbie-style dolls reenacting uh, the life of Karen Carpenter, the singer from The Carpenters, who died of complications from anorexia in the early 80s. And essentially, it's a film that had a really exciting cult life and had public screenings and then was withdrawn from circulation after a couple of years because Todd Haynes hadn't cleared the rights to the Carpenter's music. And essentially, Richard Carpenter, who wrote one of the songs and owned the rights to it, sent him a cease and desist letter. Nonetheless, it had a really vibrant afterlife through VHS to VHS bootlegs. Uh, And so people were literally... uh, try to find sort of the best quality copy that they could, but it was also circulated through very literally a person-to-person network. Uh, You had to know someone who had access to a tape, and it became this underground sensation that could only be seen illicitly. So I was giving a talk about the film for a conference about cinephilia, so the cinephilia being the love of cinema. And so this, I wanted to think about bootlegging as a kind of cinephilic practice, about you love cinema so much, you are going to seek out these cult texts that are illicit, that are legal, that you can't access otherwise, but people love it and want to keep reproducing and sharing this particular film. As I was working on it, I couldn't find anything to cite in terms of other scholarship on the aesthetics of the fact that most of these... VHS copies looked putrid. They were washed out. They were sort of multiple generations of of dubbing, which meant that both the soundtrack and the image track were very literally degraded. And from my perspective, that was very much part of the text at that point. So part of the experiences of watching Superstar was seeing these really fuzzy, warbly VHS bootlegs. And that became not only part of the experience of, of the text itself, but I was theorizing the ways in which that also marked that history of circulation, that that was actually part of the audience's contribution to it as a text that kept sort of layering upon layering different practices of watching, reproducing, circulating this particular film. So the project started there. And I was in grad school, and at some point I had to figure out a dissertation topic. I went through probably five or six different ideas for dissertations that I tried out, and I decided I didn't want to do that. But my last year of coursework... Uh, at NYU, where I was doing my graduate work, there was a new program called Moving Image Archiving and, and Preservation. So I was taking some of the core classes with this first cohort of this new emergent program within our program. So that raised a lot of questions about not only the practices of film preservation, video preservation, but also a lot of the questions of, of the ethics and the legalities of that as well. So in the introductory class, the director of the program made a statement that really resonated to me, which was essentially... There are times when, as an archivist, the ethics of preservation don't align with the legalities of copyright law. So in other words, sometimes as an archivist, you want to preserve something that you don't have the rights to do that to legally. So I was really interested in that conundrum of ethics versus rights and thinking of bootlegging, not in terms of being illegal, but in terms of an ethical practice. This idea of 
fans loving this film, sharing this film, circulating this film, and keeping it available and accessible in a way that may have been illegal, but was nonetheless a kind of ethical, loving practice. So essentially the project developed out of that convergence and sort of built the dissertation, which I later revised into a book, sort of out of those central questions. So when you mention that, uh, or, or, or your professor rather mentioned that there is this moral gray area, or maybe not moral, but legal gray area uh, within the field of archiving. Does that does that apply exclusively to uh, quote-unquote bootlegging? Mm-hmm. Or I think define mm-hmm. archiving is, mm-hmm. is sort of what I'm a little curious about. Because yeah. isn't all physical media an archive to an extent? So I think, yeah, I mean, I think that there's different conceptions of what an archive is and what archiving can be. So in that program, they were literally training people to work in archives like the UCLA Film and Television Archive, which is literally striking new prints of films. They are literally remastering or digitizing things in order to preserve them in an institutional capacity. Um, But I think we've seen an expansion of the concept of archiving in a, in a more public sense than in a scholarly sense, to, to rethink beyond these kind of institutional practices. Mm-hmm. And I think what I was looking at was somewhere in between these two things. So so some of my case studies were about actual archives doing things, and some of my case studies were about practices that exceeded institutional situations, but that were conceiving of a different kind of circulation. But with also within archiving practice, there's a kind of central conundrum which is one of the sort of the founding tensions or one of the founding sort of conundrums of, of archiving, which is on the one hand, there's the desire to preserve films, preserve works. On the other hand, there's a desire to make them accessible and to, to show them. And those things exist in tension because every time you show something, every time you make something accessible, you make it vulnerable to decay, to breaking, to getting lost, to getting stolen. And so these things exist in tension, but also the logic is like, well, there's no point in preserving something unless it gets shown, unless it's made accessible. So that's kind of the founding tension within archiving. What is it? Because this is something that I have tried to... uh answer myself for a long time. I've never really been able to pin down exactly what it is um, because this applies to me as well. Uh, But what is it about that that decay that you mention in analog formats? Uh, Obviously, of course, there's things like vinyl where people Mm -hmm. like the... The The crackle. The crackle, yes. But even VHS... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, one thing I, I enjoy doing is watching old reruns of mm-hmm. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire from mm-hmm. like 2000 and seeing the like the fuzz. The jitter. Of, yeah. It, it's not, it's, yeah. There's something about it that is uh, it's weirdly mm-hmm. comforting and mm-hmm. aesthetically enticing. Yeah. What, what is what is that? Like, <laughs> I, I don't have more. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, what's interesting. So when I was starting to work on this, so this was still the aughts. So it was, it was basically the, the early days of VHS's obsolescence. So around the time I was starting the work, was just the moment when DVD was outselling VHS. And essentially, this was kind of the the last gasp of analog videotape in terms of its broad consumer adoption and, and, and sales. So it's one of these things that I think sort of in the era when technologies are in their prime, when they are mass adopted, we kind of don't pay attention to the technical artifacts that we see within the technology because we just sort of use it as a kind of transparent uh, platform to, to to engage something. So, for instance, it's one of those things where we, you know, from the 70s, 80s into the 90s, all of those artifacts of VHS, as you record something, re-record something, it decays, it gets old, you sort of wear out the tape, those were always visible, 
but there wasn't really anything to compare it to. And so the, the aesthetic of it didn't necessarily stand out. And so one of the things I argued, thinking from this moment of obsolescence and thinking about the transition to digital formats that seemed to not have those artifacts, although digital has its own artifacts as well, is that we begin to see the technology in either its moment of newness, so it's introducing new things, or in the in the period of its obsolescence. And I think it's in those moments of breakdown, decay, and obsolescence, we begin to recognize the formal elements that we hadn't really paid attention to, that we hadn't necessarily looked at in the foreground. It was just sort of this screen that we looked through before, and, and increasingly as we've become distant from VHS, we now see it as sort of in the foreground of what we're watching. So when I started the project, there wasn't really a discourse of VHS nostalgia yet. There wasn't yet a kind of analog nostalgia yet, because it was still just sort of understood as outdated technology, but it wasn't something that we'd had enough historical or cultural distance from to sort of see as something worth thinking about or actually something that people wanted to think about and look at. And what I've seen in the last 15 years or so is that there's been an incredible increase of interest in analog formats, whether it's like literally watching obsolete technologies, whether it's filters on Instagram or or video settings that sort of reproduce VHS-like artifacts, or whether it's iconography on T-shirts and other things that look like cassette tapes. Um, There's been a lot of cassette and analog nostalgia that has happened sort of since I started working on it. And that has nothing to do with me or my work. I'm not responsible for that. But it's sort of a historical coincidence. Right. So it's it's rooted both in a nostalgia for the format and also maybe something of a subconscious mm-hmm. appreciation for the for seeing the gears mm-hmm. turn, which has mm-hmm. now become invisible in this yeah. increasingly mediated world. Right, and I think well, and part of the nostalgia factor isn't only the technology itself, uh, but this, this thing you said about comfort. So it's about a, a nostalgia for youth or childhood or whatever. So whether it may be sort of an attachment to who wants to be a millionaire as mediated by... VHS, or whether it's people's nostalgia for staying up all night on the weekends watching slasher movies in the 80s, um, that there's certain genres and certain texts, particularly horror and pornography, that are the ones that are most connotative of VHS. And uh, yeah, that was actually, that's, <laughs> what a great segue you've laid in there. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's a well-known Maybe not, maybe not super well known, but it's it's a uh, it's pretty common trivia that um, uh, pornography mm-hmm. was uh, ultimately what uh, what ended up naming VHS as the victor in the battle mm-hmm. between VHS and Betamax. So, what is it about? Because like mm-hmm. you, you think that I'm actually going to say that that's a myth. Oh, I please elaborate. So one of the things that's been sort of claimed is that. So, so for those listeners who you know are under forty who don't know, there there were two <laughs> rival VCR formats. So there was the Sony Betamax, which was a proprietary format, which I would make akin to Apple products. So, so the iPhone is proprietary to Apple, whereas Android is licensed to Samsung and many other different companies. VHS was essentially the Android in this model, so, which meant that JVC was was licensing the format and the technology to multiple manufacturers. So uh, there are a couple of things happening. Largely, this history has been retold that pornography was only available in VHS and therefore VHS won out over Betamax. But if we actually look back at the history of 
advertising both for the devices but also for pornography at the time, pornography was actually available on, on Betamax as, as well. So that is something of a myth in terms of what happened. I think what actually happened was that VHS VCRs were more affordable because by licensing out the technology, there were more manufacturers, there was more competition, the price point went down. Right. There was no having to work through Sony right. necessarily. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, you, well, you learn something new every day. Um, <laughs> and something, well, and then, so just to throw out more, th- so there was also more recently a format war between Blu-ray and HD DVDs right. as well. And what decided that, so initially there was, there were rivalries between these two, I guess maybe 12 years ago or so, where different studios were aligned with the different formats. And so different content was available on the different formats. And ultimately... What decided the difference was not actually what content was available, but was that Walmart said, we're only going to stock Blu-ray. Walmart was the biggest retailer, still is the biggest retailer in the world, but it was the biggest retailer of, of home video. And literally, that decided that decision. Sort of like, basically, the next day, HD DVD was out of business, the studios went with Blu-ray. Now, why is it, especially now that pornography has has uh, obviously its dominant home is now on the internet in its its digital format. Do you think that uh, this is such a broad question that's based on a lot of speculation, but I am curious is, do you think it would have still naturally found its home and foothold uh, in the digital space Mm -hmm. uh, had it not been for its sort of, I guess, renaissance, as it Mm -hmm. were, on home video? Mm -hmm. So basically what we see in the histories of visual technologies is that each time there's a new imaging technology that's introduced, very early on, people find ways or people just use it to make erotic images. So we see that with the history of the printing press. We see it with the history of lithographs. We see it with history of photography. We see it with cinema. So early on, there were erotic films as well. So when, when home video comes in, we also see early adoption of the technology by the porn industry. So much so that actually it was the porn studios and the porn distributors who were early adopters of home video much earlier than the Hollywood studios were. Similarly, when we make the leap to the internet and the World Wide Web and this popularization, as sort of we see early still image pornography on the internet. Um, and once we have the, the bandwidth and the capacity to have streaming video, we begin moving uh, to moving image pornography, which again, sort of, I think most people, even still in their 20s, are going to remember predates streaming movies and TV shows. Mm-hmm. So w- what is the significance in studying something with debatably no artistic value as, uh, you know, derogatorily labeled mm-hmm. as smut. Mm-hmm. Why is it important that we study this not just as a medium on its own, but its effect on greater media on a whole? Mm-hmm. So I think there's a number of reasons to study pornography. So one, which is the more cynical answer, is that it's a major industry. And so if we want to understand the economics of media industries as an industry, we can we can look to the rationale of this is a multi-billion dollar industry. It makes more money, or at least it used to make more money than professional sports and television and the Hollywood studios. Now that there's so much free pornography, I don't know that that still holds. But sort of historically, that was actually the case, that there's like there's actually a business rationale. I'm less interested in that, although sometimes I play that card to justify thinking about it. But I think there's a couple other ways that it's significant. So one is, I think we need to understand that the social meanings and also our social anxieties about sex 
and what we deem to be appropriate or inappropriate, moral or immoral, pleasurable or unpleasurable, harmful, liberating, these are all socially constructed. And these these meanings and these values that we ascribe to sex aren't coming out of the biology of sex at all, but these are about shifts in social values and social constructions of sort of the meanings that these produce. And certainly in the 20th century, 21st century, pornography is one of the major ways in which we shape, reshape, and reflect and represent those shifting morals and meanings around sex. So I think so. pornography is socially significant because it is so pervasive in shaping our ideas about sex. Secondarily, I would also say that in terms of studying it as a medium and as a media form, the representation of sex has its own set of conventions. And so when we watch pornography or if we study pornography, we begin to understand that what we're watching isn't just unmediated sex, but this is also a set of visual constructions, sonic constructions that reproduce certain formal norms on the one hand and conventions, but also then sort of in turn reshape our own expectations of sex as well. So I think many people have the experience of trying to sort of reproduce the things you've seen on the internet or whatever because you've gone down some rabbit hole or as a teenager you saw something and you're like, oh, I want to try that. And you realize like either it's awkward or it's uncomfortable or like that's not how sex sort of feels quote unquote natural to you when you're when you're exploring those things so we begin to also understand that these are constructions as well Um, but they literally reproduce certain ways of seeing sex they literally produce certain ways of imagining and, and thinking about what sex is and how sex should be so i think uh another question i was meaning to ask um which i think i think kind of ties into this subject all overall is um so the the title of the book mm-hmm. is is Inherent Vice, yeah. which as a lot of people know is uh, the shared title with mm-hmm. a book by Thomas Pynchon. Yeah, mine was six months earlier, but yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> it oh, was. Yeah. Wow. Okay. It was. It was. So that was a fluke. Um, it was to have my dissertation, and then sort of when it was it was like listed on Amazon, but it wasn't out yet. And one time I I googled or I searched Amazon to see if it was available, and both books came up, and they, neither one was out yet. And I was like. I was like, oh, I hope I get some accidental sales from people confusing my book with Thomas Pynchon's book. But, and? Uh, I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> Pynchon? Yeah. Um, so so what is the significance of mm-hmm. the title then? Sure. What, what does that mean? So Inherent Vice, I actually did not make it through the Thomas Pynchon novel. So I don't know what it even means in his context. But in even terms, if you've read the book, it's yeah, 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 impossible yeah. to I, I tried to, I did try to read it and I did not make it very far. But <laughs> in terms of my book, it's coming from an archival term. And it's, it's, um, it's about the acid used in processing wood pulp for paper. So it's a it's a term that librarians, archivists use to talk about the inherent, like literally the inherent vice, but the inherent properties of paper for paper archives and books, wherein the acid that was used to produce the paper by breaking down the wood also ultimately breaks down the paper and destroys the books itself. So it's this idea of this inherent property of the medium itself that's going to destroy the medium. So with videotape in an analog format, its basic function of recording and re-recording, recording over, reusability is what's going to wear out the technology, but also it was initially introduced specifically for off-air recording, which was considered initially to be 
either an illegal practice or an ambiguously legal practice. And you've also written in a separate essay on the sort of uh, the the exploitation mm-hmm. of fair use laws, mm-hmm. particularly in today's uh, modern media landscape, mm-hmm. like on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And so obviously a lot of those laws were matured mm-hmm. um, during the VHS era, mm-hmm. like the lawsuit, which we didn't really mm-hmm. this, yeah. go to the Supreme yeah, a Court whole lawsuit. legal thing we didn't get into. Yeah. Yes, that's another 25 <laughs> yeah. minutes. Um, but but uh, yeah, those things those things matured in that era. So. If you could just explain kind of briefly what is happening mm-hmm. today with fair use law on YouTube and why it's important that we also analyze the evolution of these laws and how they are being exploited, what that implies for the future of the mm-hmm. medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. So part of what was super interesting when I was working on the project was that all of the anxieties about VHS and its legality in the 70s was being replayed out in the aughts around YouTube. And literally all the same questions, all the same debates seem to be circulating in the early days of YouTube. The distinction, I would say, between YouTube and VCRs was that whereas VCRs were like actually protected by the U.S. Supreme Court as fair use to tape off air, in the case of YouTube, and this is one of the things we've seen with the digital transition, we've seen a transition where it wasn't actually fair use that ultimately protected YouTube. It was that YouTube was owned by Google and we moved to a kind of licensing gentleman's agreement between YouTube and the the music companies and the studios in terms of allowing certain things to exist as a kind of promotional space and monetizing them in a different kind of way or sort of following a licensing rather than ownership model, which is basically what's been driving digital technologies. And so we have this situation where it's hotly discussed, but Mm -hmm. you have people who want to use media in a transformative format, Mm -hmm. and yet the lines are so blurry on what qualifies as transformative, a lot of creators are being unfairly (laughs) unfairly taken advantage of. So part of the question is, I mean, fair use, importantly, is not a right, it's a protection which is distinct in that what fair use is, is it means it's a defense if you get sued for something. But it has always been ambiguous in terms of an affirmative right to be able to say this is absolutely fair use. It's always been a very porous kind of legal structure. The other thing I would say, which might have relevance for the listeners, is that we also sort of are moving from an analog model of owning media to a digital model of licensing. So an example of that would be, whereas you probably grew up with VHS tapes and DVDs of the Disney movies, now you have to have a a monthly subscription that you pay for every month to stream Disney Plus and to have access to the same content. So it's a different paradigm and it's a different business model that sort of has a different relationship to the media where you no longer own a version of the media yourself that's your own and that's tangible, but rather it's about an ongoing licensing agreement. Well, we're just about done here. Mm -hmm. We did not have time Mm -hmm. to get to uh, to Paris is Burning, but if you could just elaborate very briefly, uh, you know, back of the book summary of what... what... So Paris is Burning is a documentary from the early 90s about the Harlem uh, drag ball scene in New York City in the 1980s, which was predominantly an African-American and Latinx Uh, queer subculture. And it's a documentary that was really pivotal within the moment of new queer cinema at the moment of the culture wars in the early 1990s. And it's been very influential subsequently on things like RuPaul's Drag Race and Pose. And it's sort of been the key text that's been much, much debated around the ballroom scene. Uh, So the book tries to historicize the film and locate it within 
the various debates about the film. Well, Lucas, mm-hmm. uh, thank mm-hmm. you so much for coming on. You know, we obviously have a large listener base of students mm-hmm. uh, for this show, almost mm-hmm. exclusively students. Yeah. Uh, so so if you... please do the reading for your classes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when would we ever mm-hmm. drop the ball on that? Yeah. But yeah, if you also want to uh, get the word out on classes you'll be teaching next quarter, because obviously mm-hmm. registration dates are coming up. Uh, I don't because we have a very large major and it will f- the core course will fill up so <laughs> we have more students than we can handle yeah okay well you know that that's okay. that's your guys not to discourage you but yeah <laughs> they'll they'll be fine yeah. I I believe in them yeah. uh, well awesome thank you so much for coming on the show Luke's really appreciate it. Okay.